Welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Liam West and I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team. With me today I have Dr. Kit Ackerman, who's a doctor who specialises in sports medicine, sports endocrinology, and within her research is specifically focused on hormonal treatments for bone density improvements and fracture healing, as well as various imaging modalities for assessing bone quality on the back of her work with the female athlete triad. So thanks for coming on to the podcast, Dr. Ackerman. Thanks for having me. So I'm in a clinic. I have a young adolescent female runner that's come in. Well, she's hobbled in and she's being diagnosed or being told that she's got a femoral neck stress fracture. What is your approach here? How can we help the listeners? So in this situation, I do see patients like this. And when I hear about a femoral neck stress fracture, or as I like to call them, bone stress injuries, because bone stress injuries are sort of a continuum. Um, and bone stress injuries, if it's a stress reaction, can be concerning at, at the bad locations like the femoral neck, or a full stress fracture like this patient. Um, I get concerned because that's not a common place. Uh, we are seeing it more and more in our female runners. And so my job is to really tease out the cause of it. And there can be biologic causes, there can be biomechanical causes, there can be behavioral causes. So we start with a really thorough history. So how old is your patient? I'm gonna say 17. Okay, so we have a 17 year old woman. I'm gonna ask her just general review of systems. How did this come on? How did she first get the pain in terms of the history? I wanna get a medical history where I find out about her other fractures. So has she had other bone stress injuries? Has she had other full fractures? Has she had um, issues at all during her growth spurt? So we actually see this transient time during adolescence when the peak height velocity and the peak bone mineral accrual aren't quite matched up. And so people can have this transient osteopenia when they're a little bit younger in their adolescence around puberty. Um, so did she have any issues with stress injuries during that? Did she have any delays in her growth? Did she ever plateau in terms of her height or her weight? Were there times when she was more energy restricted and she wasn't growing enough? Um, has she been on any medications that are things that could predispose her to this? So is she an asthmatic and she's had steroids before? Um, does she have birth control? Has she ever been given progesterone-only birth control? Um, certainly her menstrual history. So when did she first go through menarche? Does she get 12 menstrual cycles a year? Um, training history. Has she increased the volume of training a lot? Did this happen when she was doing a big increase in, in training? Uh, dietary history, again, does she have any restrictive behaviors? Does she have any things that she completely keeps out of her diet? Are there times when she's tried to drop weight abruptly? And then a lot of times in terms of underlying bone health, there is um, a predisposition just from our genetics. So what's her family history? Are there others who've had fractures or osteoporosis or delayed puberty or other endocrine disorders? So I think a really a lot has to come from that history. Um, and someone like this, I would definitely uh, look for various things on a physical exam. So we want to get the height and weight. We want to get her BMI in general, percent median BMI for an adolescent. We want to do her blood pressure and pulse, potentially orthostatics if she looks quite thin. Um, there are other things we can see on physical exams that might let us know something is an underlying issue. So she's only had one bone stress injury, but in somebody else, if they've had many, you might be concerned about something like osteogenesis imperfecta. So does this person have blue sclera? Uh, do they have hyperthyroidism? So they have proptosis. Their eyes are really popping out. Um, is there any potential for pituitary abnormality in somebody who's amenorrhea, amenorrheic? So you're checking the gross visual fields, things like that. Cardiovascular exam, lung exam, abdomen, 
potentially tanner staging if this is someone who didn't have her period and she was primary amenorrhea we want to see if she's gone through her other stages and gotten other secondary sexual characteristics does she have any other bone pain are we missing other bone stress areas um, flexibility hyperlaxity people who have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome can be more predisposed to having lower bone density so there are different things that can be picked up in the, on the exam and it's important as an endocrinologist that I see um, the full patient and I look into primary causes for low bone density as well as secondary causes. Uh, once we tease some of that out, certainly I'd get a DEXA and because she's 17, I would probably get a bone age so that I can interpret her DEXA using a Z-score and comparing her bones to people of her general um, age and that's what the z-score is doing but we want to use the bone age rather than the chronologic age in case she went through puberty very early or she went through puberty very late because we want to use the bone age to interpret that if she has a z-score that's less than negative one we definitely want to investigate further if it's above negative one we're a little less worried and we might be then blaming it on our biomechanics or something else um, so for the labs that I usually consider I would start with a complete metabolic panel I would check phosphorus magnesium parathyroid hormone 25-OH vitamin D, I would do a CDC, a urine calcium and creatinine, and that can be done as a spot urine. It's even more thorough to do a 24-hour urine collection. That might not be necessary if her bone density is pretty good. We would do a TSH if she has primary amenorrhea or she's had secondary prolonged amenorrhea, I would do a free T4 uh, just to make sure that the TSH and the free T4 are in sync because that's helping us know if there's good pituitary function. I'll often do a celiac screen so people can have sort of silent celiac where they don't really have the GI complaints yet, but it turns out they're not absorbing a lot of things. And so I check a total IgA to make sure that they actually produce IgA, and then I do a TTG IgA. If someone doesn't make IgA, you have to use different tests because the TTG IgA could actually be a false negative, so that might need to be looked into. And then inflammatory markers, so some people recommend doing an ESR or a CRP. A lot of my athletes like to know about their iron and their ferritin, and actually that can be a buy-in to send them to the dietitian. So sometimes I throw in some iron studies, and then I do endocrine labs as needed. Again, if they're amenorrheic, we really want to rule out other causes for hypoglamic pituitary uh, amenorrhea, the, or the things that are in the differential with that, so a prolactinoma or other things. So we have to do other labs besides just estradiol and FSH and LH, and that would include things like prolactin. So those are some of the Starting points, again, if her bone density is really low um, and she's had other fractures, sometimes you even go down the road of doing genetic testing, but that's much more advanced and certainly I'd recommend that you start referring to a specialist to do that stuff. Um, but I also think it's important to bring in our colleagues. So in this situation, if I don't find much else, even if I do, frankly, um, I usually have patients when they're better do gait assessments and make sure that they don't have really strong um, heel strike, that they don't have a lot of pounding in their running and in their gait, that they don't have high pressures. Uh, I want to make sure that they have good glute strength and good abdominal strength and they don't have a positive Trendelenburg. We really want to keep that pelvic control and make sure that they're running pretty evenly. So there's a lot that can be done from biomechanics even um, if somebody has low bone density. We want to keep them active so we want to just try to figure out future ways to keep them from getting injured again. And then if all of this overwhelms somebody or if we've uncovered um, an eating disorder, it's definitely helpful to get a sports psychologist involved just to help them navigate this. So what does this mean in terms of their recovery and what does this mean in terms of future performance? I think it can be really helpful to have a team. 
Um, so those are the basic things that I would start with. Obviously, it sounds like a lot. For delayed stress injuries or really low bone density, there may be some other options in terms of treatment. We recently did a study where we looked at transdermal estrogen on our oligoamenorrheic athletes versus OCPs versus no treatment, and we actually found a, a bit of an improvement in the bone density and the bone quality by giving people transdermal estrogen. I wouldn't do that alone. I think that that's in the situation where you've already addressed the energy availability, we're really working on that, and this might sort of just help it along. Um, but we really don't have a lot of other medical treatments, so it's important to just have a couple options. Um, some people have recommended giving teriparatide in people that have delayed fractures. We definitely couldn't do that in this patient because she's an adolescent, so we can only do those, um, uh, those daily injections of teriparatide um, off-label and in adults whose bones are completely fused. So really, there are not a lot of other options. That's why we have to go after the behavior and the biomechanics. That is a, a very good blueprint for all of our listeners on how to manage someone coming in with a, with a stress fracture. And you, you mentioned the primary and secondary sort of causes for that. And it seems that outside of those, some of those straight, you know, random primary things, that there was a lot about energy availability. Uh, and that seemed to be where a lot of your questions were trying to work out whether that could have been an issue for this patient. What's the link? So energy availability um, specifically is defined as dietary energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure normalized to fat-free mass. Um, and that's the equation that's well explained in the female athlete triad um, consensus statement from 2007. And it's also based on a lot of works by Dr. Ann Laux, who looked at manipulating energy availability and exercise. And when people's energy availability, these recreational women's energy availability was below 30, there were um, abnormalities in hormonal function. And this happened just over a few days. So as a matter of fact, as energy availability dropped below 30, bone protein synthesis and mineralization and insulin, which can enhance amino acid uptake, both went down. And IGF-1 was down and T3, a form of thyroid hormone was down. These effects just occurred within the first five days of the energy deficiency, and this is before estrogen was even decreased. Now we know that prolonged energy, uh, decreased energy availability can cause a lot of ab abnormalities. We know that it can cause amenorrhea, and so of course that is a state of low estrogen, and estrogen is very important for bone. But it's not just estrogen, there's so many different hormones that are at play. So estradiol, androgens, IGF-1, T3, leptin, insulin, glucose, PYY, ghrelin, cortisol, all these different things have a role, growth hormones. So when these things are disrupted by low energy availability, they're going to affect bone. And so that's why we really want to get at the nutritional aspect of this patient. We want to make sure that she's energy replete. Um, there have been a lot of studies that have shown these correlations with low energy availability affecting these different hormonal axes and the correlation with poor bone density and poor bone quality. So you've been involved in some really good research uh, on the issues of bone health. Can you take the listeners through some of your studies? Sure. So I've been working with Dr. Madhu Misra on studies involving amenorrheic athletes or oligomenorrheic athletes. And we've done this uh, cross-sectional data work and also we've done a project looking at giving patients who are oligoamenorrheic either transdermal estrogen, birth control pills, or no treatment to see what the effects are on bone. So just to walk through some of that, what we found in the cross-sectional data was that athletic activity in general, whether they were amenorrheic athletes or eumenorrheic athletes, 
the cross-sectional bone area at the tibia was bigger. And that makes sense. These were weight-bearing athletes. They were largely runners. And we compared their tibias to non-athletes. They were wider. And so it's causing a greater moment of inertia by having people do repetitive pounding on their legs. But when we separated out the amenorrheic athletes, we found that they had a decrease in their trabecular number and their cortical thickness. So looking at the 3D images of the bone, we could do this with something called high-resolution peripheral quantitative CT, where we could actually see trabeculi and see the cortex. Um, these were lower, and the trabecular and total BMD, bone mineral density, were lower. And when we applied this fancy program called finite elemental analysis, we found that there was actually a decreased stiffness and failure load. So these amenorrheic athletes had weaker bones. Even though they were wider, like those eumenorrheic athletes, they weren't of the same quality. They had fewer trabeculi, they had more space between those different bone bridges, and so it affected the strength. We also asked our athletes about their fracture history. So we asked them about their lifetime fracture history, and we tried to um, separate out full fractures and stress fractures or bone stress injuries and we looked at their bone quality and their DEXAs, and we found that the amenorrheic athletes, or the oligoamenorrheic athletes, had a much higher fracture rate. So these were patients that were 15 to 25, and the amenorrheic athletes, 47% of them had had a fracture in their life, versus 25.7% of our eumenorrheic athletes and 12.5% in our non-athletes. When we really teased that down to just stress fractures or bone stress injuries, it was much higher. So about 32% um, percent of our amenorrheic athletes had stress injuries where only about 6% of our eumenorrheic athletes did and our non-athletes who weren't doing repetitive exercise had none. Um, that number, the incidence of it happening was really increased after people got um, past the average age of when we typically get periods in the US. So around 12 and a half, we found this big increase in um, bone stress injuries in the amenorrheic athletes and the um, the number of bone stress injuries they had or the number of subjects that were affected went up and up and up as they got older, as they had continued problems with their hormonal function. Uh, lastly, we looked at the DEXA quality, or sorry, the, the DEXA results on people who had had two bone stress injuries or not, so two or more versus fewer than two, and we found that the bone density was worse in those amenorrheic athletes who had had fewer than two stress fractures and we found that the quality of their bone was a little bit worse as well. So it just kind of reinforced the idea that the, the number of bone stress injuries can truly um, give us some information about the bone quality and the bone density. And that's why now in my clinical practice, I think of two or more bone stress injuries and any kind of risk factors for low energy availability is a reason to do more of a bone workup. Uh, we have some upcoming information coming out in terms of our transdermal study. It was a year-long study, and we actually found an increase in bone density in those oligoamenorrheic athletes who um, were on transdermal estrogen for a year with a oral progesterone pill for part of the month, and we found that the bone quality actually improved a little bit as well. So that's an exciting future direction. We need to do more work in that field. Um, but again, it, it boils down to really making sure that our amenorrheic athletes get over this amenorrhea very quickly by addressing their um, low energy availability. And there even just subtle abnormalities in menstrual function can be a bit of a warning sign. So if people start to have variability in their menstrual cycle and they previously had regular cycles, there's probably a link there in terms of their training or their diet. So we just need to be very um, aware of this and think of the menstrual cycle as another vital sign.
We said that the femoral neck stress fracture is a high risk fracture for needing to go actually and think is there deeper meat causes behind this and do we need to treat those rather than just simple biomechanical. Can you tell me a few more of the high risk, some of the medium and some of the low, so the listeners sort of can try and categorise these different injuries? So this is an area that's getting a little more interesting. We're trying to tease this out a little bit. We had a recent study that um, where we looked at male athletes and they were evaluated in terms of um, having bone stress injuries at trabecular rich locations. So bone has both trabecular and cortical um, aspects to them, but there are specific areas that have much more trabecular rich locations versus um, cortical rich. So trabecular or high risk areas are the pelvis, the femoral neck, the calcaneus potentially, and then cortical rich locations would be things like the tibia, the fibula, the rest of the femur, the metatarsal and the tarsal navicular. So we looked at people who had bone stress injuries just at the trabecular rich location versus those, or I'm sorry, people who had uh, injuries at the trabecular rich locations, those high risk areas versus cortical rich only. And when we looked at male athletes, we found that many of those people with the trabecular rich locations had uh, poor bone density and the bone density was definitely worse in those trabecular rich athletes versus the cortical rich. We found that athletes with trabecular rich bone stress injuries had a 4.6 times increased risk for low BMD versus those with just the cortical sites. And uh, runners who often uh, have low energy availability had a 6.1 time increased risk for low BMD versus non-runners. So this is an area that we're doing more work in. We're looking at our big female athlete cohort. Uh, there was one other study that was done earlier in a smaller cohort also suggesting that trabecular rich locations may be of concern. So when we talk about high risk, it might be the trabecular cortical part, also the outcome of what happens if you have a bone stress injury. So certainly having a severe bone stress injury at the femoral neck, which could progress to a full fracture, would be very um, detrimental and, and really uh, a, a bad outcome for an athlete because it could potentially lead to a pinning or a full hip replacement. So that's why that's a high risk because the outcome of it is so important. What would your overall take home message be for the listener if they have someone that comes in with a stress fracture to their clinic? I think with just about any diagnosis, you want to look at the whole patient. So you want to make sure that you're not missing something else in the room, such as low energy availability or another medical problem. And we want to make sure that we're getting to the cause of the bone stress injury. So is it based on biomechanics? Is it based on an underlying metabolic problem? Is it based on um, some sort of other disease that we're not picking up? And we want to address the things that we can change and the things that we can diagnose to try to prevent this from happening in the future. Thank you very much for your time, giving us a blueprint for our listeners and myself on how to actually manage and, and question these patients that come into our clinics and the reasons behind why we need to actually delve into them further. So thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thanks to you, the listener, for joining us on this BGSM podcast with Dr. Ackerman. I hope you enjoyed it. You've learned lots and remember you can engage further with the BGSM via our various social media channels. I hope you get to have a physically active day. Thank you.